Bookstew viewers. Today, for the first time on Bookstew out of 50-some-odd uh, episodes, I have an author of historical fiction, which I know is a very popular genre with, uh, with a lot of readers. But first, I want to tell you about my own first encounter with the painter Botticelli, who is the subject of uh, the book that we're going to be talking about today. It's actually called Botticelli's Muse, and um, I'm going to introduce you to author Dora Bloom in a minute. But first I want to tell you about a painting that I found in the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. And if you've ever been there, you know that there are treasures stuffed away in every corner of the museum because she was a collector as well as an inspiration to artists and an art collector. And uh, I think on the third floor, almost in a stairwell, there was this painting, and it's called Madonna of the Eucharist. And it's an, uh, an angel who looks like a teenager, and I'll be showing you a picture of it, um, bringing what looks like very good news to the Madonna and the child. And the angel's eyes are closed because, you know, it's, he's just in conversation. And so without even open eyes, the expression on his face is so purely, beautifully divine that whenever I would go to the garden, I would just sit there and park myself in front of that painting and just not move. And in fact, when the horrible theft happened, since this mm. painting did not get stolen, one of the first things I read about in the paper was I'm like, oh no, did my Botticelli, did it get stolen? Which is very selfish of me, but it did not. It's still there and I urge you to go see it. So um, I'm very, very pleased to have Dora Bloom joining me today. Dora is the author of Botticelli's Muse. And my first question to you, Dora, is a trilogy about someone whose life is pretty much, uh, we've got sketchy details and not much else. So uh, what, why Botticelli and why a trilogy? Well, when I first started working on this novel and realizing that it was about Botticelli, because I didn't, well, I had done some free writing exercises with some writer friends of mine, and I found myself in this voice of a character who turns out to be Floriana, who, who is, that's a universally recognized symbol of Flora, art historians have, uh, she's on the cover there. And I was, I realized I was writing about this painting, the Primavera. And I had done a pretty elaborate outline that covered a 20-year period from 1477 to 1498, but when I actually got into the book, writing it, this first book only covers 18 months. And the story was still calling to me. So that original outline is, is the outline for the trilogy. Not the chapters in the outline, but the time frame. So the first book just covers the, the beginning of his paintings that I, I think that The Birth of Venus and The Primavera are, are his most spectacular work, and that his work went downhill after that because most of his work was done by the people in his bottega, in his workshop. Ah. And also he came under the influence of Savonarola. Now when you write fiction, historical fiction, for me when I do it, uh, after a while, what really happened and what I imagined gets very blurry, the line between the two things. 
So that's I definitely want to ask <laughs> you about that because um, since I haven't read that much historical fiction, I think uh, in some that I've read, I think the author has usually taken great pains to say, okay, I, this part is real. This is what we know. Um, and you actually even have a timeline in the back, but you've very artfully mixed together the real and the voices that spoke to you when you were writing the book. Is there any, I mean, obviously, as I said before, you didn't put unicorns and spaceships in there, right. so there's a limit. But um, did, so the first character that really spoke to you before even the character of Botticelli was Floriana, yes. the young girl. Yes. So Floriana is a very interesting character. She's a very young girl. Uh, she's unfortunately um, uh, separated from her family and is raped by um, a monk who uh, drops her off at um, an abbey and a monastery and just kind of leaves her, they rapes her and leaves her there. And so you, so the sister of Botticelli, is she an invent, who, she, who takes care of Floriana, is she invented or is she a real she's character? She's totally invented. I mean, she, she's got her own background that's very similar to Floriana's in that she also, as a young girl, was raped, but she became the abbess of, um, of the nun's, nun's home. Right. Um, so who, did you, who was essential for you to portray who were the real characters in the book? Because there's Medici's all over the place. Right. So yes. all, all the Medici's, are they right. true characters, yes. real people? Yes, um, definitely. And their wives, historically, are the same, are, are real. And can you tell us about what was Botticelli's relationship with the Medici's? Well, from the research that I did, he actually, at the age of 13, was brought into the Medici household. As, a, as a, an apprentice as, painter? As or? an artist. You know, they, his Cosimo, uh, who was the father of uh, Lorenzo. Lorenzo, uh, Lorenzo's father, is um, discovered him. Now we're getting into that blurry zone again. Uh, when I do research, I don't do it like a scholar. I just, you know, absorb a lot of stuff. I read certain chapters. I, I uh, read somewhere that Botticelli had a nightmare about being married. He didn't want to be married. Where I saw that, where I read that, I do not remember. Also, another thing that happens in the book is after the uh, Pazzi conspiracy, when these bodies were, you know, beheaded or the, the hands taken off and people were paraded uh, on spikes and, and certain bodies of the Pazzi conspiracy were hung out of the windows of the, uh, of the place where it's now right near uh, Palazzo Vecchio in, in Florence. So somewhere I read that Botticelli had painted, had been told that he had to paint them. And there's no way that it could have survived because to paint on the outside of a building, 
to do a fresco on the outside of a building. It, it wouldn't last. Some source, somewhere, I, I saw that, and I built it into the story as a major event. That was a very stunning event. So um, there was all kinds of conspiracies and wars going on between the, the Medici's and the church, and um, the Pazzi conspiracy that you mentioned, uh, Lorenzo's brother is stabbed and murdered during that. That's, that really happened. So that really yeah. happened. Oh, absolutely. And, but Lorenzo kind of goes mad with grief and orders Botticelli to paint these bodies that are just strung up. And all, uh, all that Botticelli wants to do is get back to his painting La Primavera that has um, in your fictional version has Floriana in it. Right. But he's forced basically to stay for two extra years. He's, he's under house arrest. Right, as a painter, but a, a house arrest, I mean, it's not like Guantanamo it's, where you sit It's in not yourself. two years, it's it's just a few months. It's it's over the summer. Oh, okay. And then, uh, by then, Floriana has gone off to Sabianetta, this uh, Jewish community up near uh, Mantova. And was that a real community? That's too? a real, yes. So um, since you're Jewish, and I'm Jewish too, and we, ha I mean, you seem, you have a very strong connection to um, the difficulties of being Jewish in Florence, even though the Medici's were relatively benevolent, the church certainly wasn't. Um, so what, how soon did Floriana come to you as a young Jewish girl? Right from the beginning, I think. You know, I mean, I did a few of these writing exercises. It just, I, I spent, when I realized that I was writing about the Primavera, I went to Florence and I went to the temple in Florence and I, into their library, I did some research and a, a cemetery that, a Jewish cemetery that was there. It just seemed to come to me that way. So had you been to Florence before you started thinking about the books, or oh, did you start thinking and then you went no, to Florence? No, well, I think the seeds to the book go back to when I was 19 years old, and I was a, uh, a student at the Academia, uh, you know, the Academy of Fine Arts in Florence. Ah. So how did that, now what's your, how did that come about? Had you always, uh, did you paint, did you draw? Uh, what's well, I was a visual artist first. You know, that was uh, when, when I was at Bennington. I had a split major between literature and visual arts. Do you feel like you have a split personality between literature and, and paintings? Because um, it, the, the book is very much enhanced by your sketches oh, and they're placed you. on the page as though you were reading like an illuminated manuscript. Oh, it's, I'm so delighted that you got that reaction. Oh, absolutely, and they're just beautiful. And um, viewers, I will show you a bunch of uh, Dora's illustrations because they really just they add so much to the book um, but you seem to re you captured um, I thought Botic what Botticelli's devotion to his art and how he didn't want to just paint Madonna's and he didn't want to paint Medici's all the time and so uh, La Primavera was really well, according to your book, the first chance he really had to, he got, he was basically commissioned by Lorenzo's cousin. A 15-year-old uh, boy. Who took over being his patron and said, 
your, your master, paint what you want to paint. Imagine how freeing that was for him. Oh, it was a terrible dilemma for him. Because? Because he, he, he it, well, first of all, he did not like his new patron at all. He was very insulted. It was it felt like a demotion for him. He was, well, and he and Lorenzo was, hung out together, yeah, and they and were then, like buds. And then Lorenzo says, "Here, I'm giving you to my cousin." Uh, right, right. My little cousin, my weird little cousin. My weird little cousin, <laughs> who ends up being a, a very likable character. Yes, he does. Yeah, and he actually now. It, so is he is a real is he a real character? The, the name person? I did change the name a little bit, but he was a real character, an orphan. And 15, it was actually, I think, maybe he was 13 or 14 at the time. Did he make the puppet in, in the book? No, um, that's completely invented. Okay, so it, this again <laughs> is like the beauty of how everything melds together in this book. Some of me like want to know, well, did this really happen? <laughs> was this person real? And some of me was just like, I'm flowing with the story. Do I really care who's real and who isn't? But he was a great character. He made puppets and dolls. Yes, he was. He was um, really ridiculed for it and diminished himself compared to Botticelli because you look at what Botticelli can paint, and but everything he made seemed to be purposeful and great interpretations of what people look like to him. So I, okay. So let me just narrow in on that because that was such an interesting detail. How did you think of that as something that, was it his age that would make you think that he would spend time making puppets? What, what in his character made you think that this would be something that he would do? And dolls, really. Well, it's like puppets. you're asking me, where does my creative, where do my creative ideas come from? Where do your creative ideas come from? Some, <laughs> I'm only kidding. No, it's, it's something, when I, when, I, when I was working on this novel, um, I would do a warm-up file where I would actually write how I felt that day, blah, 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 blah. And then I would call on uh, the entities out there, if there's the spirit of these characters come and help me write what I'm going to write the next day or that day. And um, ideas came to me uh, about the puppets, I mean about the dolls. I, I don't know where they ca that came from. And some of the things, it was very mystical, I wrote some scenes that were completely imaginary that I found out later actually happened. Now that's really freaky when that happens. That is really freaky. So um, how long, so you studied in Florence, how long were you there for? I was were... there for about a year and so, I went back several times. So that must have really, Florence must have really seeped into your bones. I felt like I had been there in another lifetime. Ah, really, okay. Definitely, I, I felt happier there than I had been anywhere else. I felt uh, less of an ambulatory neurotic <laughs> there. Uh, you know, you're surrounded by this incredible art history. And initially, when I first went to Florence, I was overwhelmed by the number of galleries. And I just, I, I spent my time in the movie theater and eating pastries. I just, it was, I was overwhelmed. And plus there was uh, a strike, Chopero. It, it, the the uh, art academy was closed. So, oh. so I went down to Perugia to learn Italian. And then I came back to Florence when the school, the strike was over. Have you been back since you finished this first book? Uh, 
Yeah. Well, but, not since it's been released. Does it but feel, in 2016, I was there. Did it feel different once you, I mean, this is a, a large work. It's close to 500 pages, right, if it isn't it's more? It's more than 500, So, I mean, how did, how did you feel knowing that you had put together this uh, half reality, part reality, part alternate reality, and there you are back in the city where you set, where most of it is set. Did it feel different to you? Mm. I mean, no, it I put, mean, it put it's, its stamp on you. Florence put it, and now you're putting your stamp on, on Florence and on these, these people who walk these streets. Right. I'm, I mean, I'm just fascinated by you at 19 being brave enough to go and study abroad anyway. <laughs> so obviously there was something that was, that was calling to you. Right. So out of the characters of the book, so we've also got Savonarola. Did I Savonarola. say Savonarola? Savonarola. Boy, I've had problems with that. Um, I should have just thought of it as Savannah's on a roller. But oh, that's a good. Point. <laughs> now he, um, I always, and the only, I never knew much about him. I just kind of thought he was one of these mad monks like Rasputin, you know. But you, you really show uh, other sides of him, because I think he did some pretty evil things. But um, here he's. Very, I mean, he's a rapist, but he's very humble uh, when it comes to, to God and what God is asking him to do. He shuns everything that's material. Um, so he's certainly got, he's very multifaceted. Well, I think all people are multifaceted. And I, you know, Botticelli created these amazing art treasures, but as I discovered or built his character, you know, uh, using my creative imagination, uh, it was not a logical approach. I discovered that he was happiest doing his art, but he, he was very, a very indecisive person. Hmm. And that the scene where he has to choose between the Medici or, or Floriana was emblematic of his indecisiveness. That was such a dramatic scene. Um, I'm going to set the stage for a little reading that I would like you to do. So towards the end of the book, um, Botticelli is called to Florence because of the war that's going on between certain elements that wanted to eliminate the Medicis. And this is when Lorenzo gets stabbed and his brother is killed. But Floriana, whom he's fallen in love with, and whom he's basically pledged to be with, protect. Um, he, she's just about ready to have a baby, but his loyalty to the, Medici, the Medi well, Medici's is calling to him and he has to make a decision. And he makes a decision to go to Florence, leave her as she's about to have the baby. And he's like, I'll be back as soon as I can, hon, but I just gotta go because the Medici's are calling me. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd love you to read a letter that Floriana writes to him. She's initially very bitter that he's left her, of course, and remembering she's only 13 or 14, 15? She's 19. Oh, 19 by then? Okay, but she was... She's 19. She's, I mean, she's had to deal with uh, the loss of her family um, being raped, getting pregnant at a very young age, really ha such insecurity and the idea that she could be persecuted at any any second. 
And so she does forgive him for leaving her, and she writes him a letter. And I was wondering if you could read the letter sure. for us. Did you mark the place? Yep, I've got it. Um, I thought this letter was, was just so beautifully done. Oh, thank you. So and it, he gets it when he's still under house arrest to paint this gruesome. The bodies hanging. So he's painting bodies hanging. And then finally, after not having heard from her, he receives this letter. And he doesn't even know if she's forgiven him yet. So right. why don't you take it from there? Dear heart of my heart, Sandro, the child is small with jet black eyes and a sweet smiling face. Manfredo was right. It was long after you left before she made her first cry on such a sad and joyous day. Sad you were not there with me. Sad you were heading from a house of new life to one filled with so much death. And even though I knew you had to go, I was angry with you. Seeing her beauty, the black hairs on her scalp shooting toward the heavens, I said to myself, there must only be room for love in my heart. I was so distraught when you left. I worried for your safety, and as much as I told myself to believe your promise of return, I knew in my heart I had lost you. Two weeks later, three of the pigeons with the red bands on their ankles lighted on the, their roost, so Graziella and I thought you were back at work at Villa di Castello. I asked her not to go to you, but she said it was business and she had to. When she got back, she was shocked at the news that you had been placed under house arrest. Piero told her of your melancholy and desire to come to me and how it was the only thing on your mind. Then she told me how you broke Savonarola's nose in one blow because you learned it was he who had soiled me. I pulled it out of her. I remember his face and the shyness of a stuttering priest, like an ugly, you want me to read the whole? Just her whole letter, uh, yeah. An ugly duckling, awkward, and never looking any of the girls in the eye. I would never have imagined him to be the one, but now I see him in Devorah's dark eyes. When I didn't hear from you, I decided to move to a small settlement on the Po River outside of Verona, where I will be safe. I will write to you again when I reach there. Love is in my heart for you. As much as I tried to make it leave, it has not gone away. I dream of you still. I hope you forgive me for my icy words that sent you away. If your memory returns to that terrible hour with remorse and regret as mine has, we must burn those pains with the fire of love. The delight we took in each other's gifts, your wonderful painting of me, and all the things I made for you with my hands. I made them with love from the first day I wove the crown of flowers for you. By the time you get this letter, I will be gone from Tuscany and hopefully finding my small place in a new world, which is called Sabioneta, a tiny town filled with weavers and many Jews. It is far away from the priests who want only to convert us. I will be safe. The town even has its own printing presses to make our Hebrew prayer books imagine you, as Piero always said. Stella, the midwife, was the only one I could trust to get this letter to you unopened. I had thought to send it to Oslavia, but since that monk is often there, I did not dare to send it to her. Stella told me she trusted Lorenzo's mother, Lucrezia, 
to get this to you and this small gift too. Hold me in your heart, Sandro. I give you the doll we found together. I have placed a new dress on her, new hair, and woven a tiny blanket for her. Do not see the death that surrounded it, but more the delight and comfort the small child might have known with it. Please keep her with you and keep her as a symbol of endings and new beginnings, of hope lost and found once again. I need to grow strong on my own to find the God of my life within my own two hands. As I weave stories and embrace the mystery of life, it is because of your love and generosity toward me and of Slavia's compassion that I am even alive and well enough to consider such a life of freedom. Your small books have inspired me to make my own with drawings of flowers and ladybugs and anything that shows me its beauty. I do not belong in the convent, but also not in the convent of Graziella's world and not as your muse without first being a muse to myself. I will write to you again when I am settled and pray you will come to find me. Maybe someday we will continue that candlelit evening in the cantina at Villa di Castello. I will never forget you and how I felt in your arms and you in mine. You, my sweet Sandro, are my love and protector forever with me. I carry the mantle of your love about me like the most beautiful weaving that God could create. And I still dream of the day we will be together again. With all my memories of you, I will weave together now my hopes for the future for each of us in our separate worlds and for the day when those worlds will combine. All my love, Floriana. Oh, <laughs> I haven't read it in so long. It was moving it's me. It's pretty beautiful, isn't it? Wow. It's a pretty beautiful it's thing you wrote there, right, Dora? <laughs> I mean, I, that just, uh, wow. you know, after 500 pages of, that are fraught with conflict, blood, um, the internal battles of the characters within themselves. What do I do? What's the right thing for me to do? Um, to come to this, I mean, you can imagine him after having had to paint bloody bodies with their arms hacked off to get something like this and to be completely revitalized and retransformed. Well, again. to know that she still loves him. And the, I mean, of course, the language is just. It's just beautiful. Thank so, you so much. Um, if I mean, I'm hoping that all of you will want to uh, read read the book Botticelli's Muse. Um, that is a beautiful culmination, but there's certainly a lot more uh, for you to enjoy, learn from, um, and then we've got two more books coming up. So, what will the next two books cover? The next book is going to be about a lot about. Uh, Floriana and what she went through in the four years before she comes back. And at the end of this book, she's, it's hinted that she's returning. Right. But um, so it's, it, we have their reunion. It's, it starts in 1482 and it ends with the bonfire of the vanities, the first of Savonarola's, which is in 1490. So will you, um, you've dealt very well in the first book with the contradictions of Savonarola's character. Is the second book more of a Savonarola and Floriana type book? Does, does Botticelli fade kind of into the background? 
No, he, he actually, the name, the, the working title for book two is Botticelli's Mistake. Ah, so are they each going to be, the third one will and, be? And the mistake is, is falling under the sway of Savonarola. Ah. Because one of the legends about Botticelli is that he burned his work on the bonfire of the van. Because Savonarola told Savonarola him Savonarola finally, right? finally reached him somehow. And it, part of it is because of his separation from her, mm. which, you know, the, the, the relationship is going to go in the trilogy is through being together, separating, and maybe ending up together at the end. So the climax of book two is the first bonfire of the vanities, and 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 once again Botticelli is going to see that he made the wrong choice. Yeah. The third book is going to be the climax of the third book is going to be the execution of Savonarola, which actually happened in 1498. So did you find him as compelling a character as Botticelli? Well. I think a lot of people have found him the most compelling character in the book, Savonarola, because he's the antagonist, but yet he's he's got a side of him that's a healer. Right, right. So um, it was like I knew a few things of legend. There were just basically three things. I had met, I, I had a friend from Italy who visited me in the States we went to visit an uncle of his who had, he'd never met, who had fought, who lived in Hyde Park and had fought in the Second World War where convent walls had been destroyed and skeletons of infant babies oh. were in the walls. So that was seed number one. So I, somehow I knew that was going to, there was going to be a baby in a wall somewhere mm. in, in the story. And, and the second seed was Vasari's book, Lives of the Artist, who he wrote that Botticelli was kind of a minor, a minor artist. Okay, so Botticelli was dead by the time Vasari wrote that book. So I had that, that was the second thing. And then the third thing was the, this legend that Botticelli had burned some of his work. So I had those three seeds, if you will, and and that's they, the seeds that, or it, I think there's a French word, donné, gift, the gifts that were given to me to, to help me write the book. Uh, does Botticelli, are a lot of, were a lot of his paintings saved? It's legend whether or not he did burn them. It, there's no proof, but in the book, it's, he's, during, I don't know if you remember at the beginning of the book, he's, he does this kind of caricature of Savonarola. Yes, and He yes. gives him a penis, penis nose face, or something. Yeah. So throughout the book, he's, he has these secret sketchbooks that have a lot of erotica in them. And so that's probably what uh, he'll be burning, mostly his sketch, his secret sketches hmm. uh, is probably what I'll have him. I can't tell yet, you know, see how it unfolds. So how far, how far are you along in the second book? I've got about 150 pages. Oh, that's... But I'm at a kind of pause right now. I, I have to do a little more research. To so when you're not writing these novels, 
Are you, um, I, I'm going to uh, also show the audience more. This is a beautiful calendar that you created. And also, um, there are three coloring books, all that reflect um, various illustrations you did for Botticelli's Muse. So do you ever, uh, I mean, this had nothing to do with the books, right? So how much time do you no. spend doing art versus writing? Well. I do most of the mandala things when I'm listening to the PBS NewsHour. <laughs> I don't want to see the news, but I listen to it. Just and don't, I, don't do it during it, like MSNBC's 9 to 11 block or you'll be stabbing <laughs> things with your pen. Uh, no, it's just, it's been almost a, an obsession to do the drawings. I, it's very relaxing for me. Yeah, I was, I was mentioning that I find um, coloring, adult coloring, though the the big uh, rage for it has quieted a little bit, yes, but um, it's still even alive. when my daughter was little and we would color together, I just, to be there with colored pencils, choosing your colors and just coloring away is so, the most relaxing thing. It definitely so. is. So um, how did you, was it hard, difficult for you to find a publisher? How did, how did that all come about? Well, you know, the book was with an agent for a couple of years. She did not sell it. I took it back. I, I um, did another revision on the manuscript and then illustrated it and decided I was going to self-publish it. Ah, so it's so. So Juicebox Artist Press. I, I've run writing workshops that are called Juicebox Artist Press. Ah. Uh, well, not press, but ju in Somerville, Juicebox Artists. Um, it's the Amherst Writers and Artists method of prompted writing. Oh. And it's, uh, so I did that for about eight years. And I have a lot of work that my students have written that I would like to publish. So uh, I, rather than just publish it in, under my own name, I, I, I wanted to launch the Juice Box Artist Press with this book, but I also want to be able to publish other people's things, especially people over 50. There you go. You have a lot still <laughs> to accomplish. That's why I'm going to have a Patreon page. Do you know what Patreon is? No. In the tradition of patrons from way back, there's now, with this new electronic economy and the internet and everything, there is a, a, a website where people creating uh, content can be supported at a, for as little as a dollar a month. Oh, so like so people. So you could be the the Lorenzo de Medici. So you yes, and they get something for it. You know, for example, they might get um, a, a a new look at one of the chapters from book two, oh. or they might uh, if they if they're interested. I believe that creativity unexpressed turns to poison in everybody, mm -hmm. and that everybody has a creative spark. And that's been one of the things that's so important to me is to is to light those sparks in myself, and also with other people. Well, to I would other say people. that Botticelli's muse is a is a bonfire <laughs> of creative sparks. Thank and you. And I want to thank you so much for joining me today, um, books to viewers. The book is Botticelli's muse, and it's available. It's available everywhere. You can you can order it from any bookstore. You can buy it on Amazon. Barnes and Noble. It's in uh, the catalog, the Ingram catalog. It's so in some libraries across the country. 
So. so those of you who enjoy historic fiction and those of you who love Botticelli's work and really, how could you not, um, <laughs> will really enjoy this book and, and savor and cherish this book. Dora, thank you so much for being my guest and Bookstu viewers. Have a great day and keep that spark going. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome.